This is the All Markets Summit podcast from Yahoo Finance. Joining us now, Julie Hyman with Richard Edelman and Dan Houston. Good afternoon, everyone. Nice to see everyone out here again. And we are going to be talking about trust and broadening market participation. Really interesting topics right now. Um, and I think very much in the news and in the sort of public zeitgeist right now. And on that point, um, Richard Edelman is here with us and Dan Houston. Um, Edelman, the firm, the communications firm, is well known for its trust barometer. And we now have an exclusive preview of a full survey that's due out in November that Richard has been kind enough to share with us. Among the findings of that, among the industries they surveyed, financial services has the lowest trust. 57% of investors trust that industry. Uh, There was a crash following the financial crisis in trust in financial services, as one might imagine, and it's never fully recovered. So Richard, talk to us about the findings of that survey and what's behind, do you think, that lack of trust and how do you fix it? The crash in um, financial services was really um, precipitated by the 2008 um, recession, and banks let it down. Um, And there have been recoveries and then falling back. So Wells Fargo, other financial institution problems have caused a continual drag on reputation. And so if tech is the highest, which it has been, You also, though, see separation in component parts. So as financial industry has tried to dimensionalize its reputation, things like crypto, blockchain, really lag overall trust in uh, the industry. And so innovation has not helped financial services nearly as much as it's helped other industries. That's a profound point. People are still worried about you know, is it reliable? Is it something that I can count on? Is it something that's well-regulated? Is government able to keep up? So in short, financial services still has work to do, but it's on the path to recovery. Also interesting, the trust in financial services in markets like China is huge, 85%. That's where innovation and financial, et cetera, has really helped reputation of financial services, whereas in the US, it is more a matter of being a drag on reputation. Dan, um, your scope in financial services is formidable. You Mm -hmm. guys have 33 million customers uh, worldwide. We were just talking in the back, and you were telling me what what, more than a trillion dollars in assets. About 1.4 trillion. 1.4 trillion. So obviously, a lot of people are putting their trust in you. They are. Um, About half of the folks uh, who are your customers are in employer plans. That means the other half are putting their money in principal financial, not associated with that. So is then there sort of a self-selecting aspect? In other words, people who trust financial services are giving you their money to manage. Um, And are you satisfied with that? How do you reach out to the people who don't necessarily? How do you maintain the trust of the people who are your clients? I think the, the number one thing you want to do is make sure you have good transparency. What are the fees that are associated with your products and services? What are the services that you're getting for the money that you're paying? Where's the value relative to other, some uh, third party benchmark? But again, I come back to full disclosure and there must be, you know, a, a, a little bit of a view like your own congressman. There's some sense that Congress has a fairly low level of confidence, but my own senator, my own congressman, I tend to have a higher opinion of them. When we survey our customers, they actually feel very good about the value they're receiving, the disclosure, the transparency. And so we would say within our own internal surveys, across that 
cohort of those people who know us because they are a current customer, one of those 33 million customers that you cited, they actually approve of what we do and think there is good value. Um, you talked about sort of that, that disconnect between the company I work with versus financial services as a whole. Um, Richard, another finding of your survey that I found interesting is that there is a gap in trust between what you deem the informed public and the mass population. We're talking about a, a big gap. It's 12 percentage points uh, in trust there. What do you mean by informed public, first of all, when you're looking at the survey? What is that a reflection of? So it's education, meaning college plus, it's 75K plus income, it's three or four media a day, and, and then there's the rest. So it's 15% of those who we survey are elites. And I would say, in general, one of the great problems of the world is the mass class divide, that the perception of the 1%, the idea of income inequality, the idea somehow that uh, you know since 2008, those wealthy people have really just gotten more wealthy while median income has lagged, and so, um, for financial services, that gap of 12 points is significant. Um, and it's been so for years. In fact, that gap has widened since 2009, so the recovery is much more substantial among the elites. Yeah. Which makes sense. It does, yeah, very much. So what do you do about that? I mean, I know certainly that's part of the political conversation right now. Um, you have people on the left like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders who have frequently attacked Wall Street, talked about ways to rein it in as a way of sort of capitalizing on that lack of trust in financial services and concern over income inequality. Dan, as somebody who runs a financial services company, mm -hmm. how do you address income inequality? Do you address income inequality? Is that a conversation that you have with clients? Oh, it should be a regular part of our conversation. I, I couldn't help but think, though, as we were talking about the industry, uh, I'm the incoming chairman of the board of the ACLI, the American Council of Life Insurance. If you just looked at the life insurance sector of this country, which is a formidable industry in terms of the number of people that they employ, it's measured in millions, they bought a third of all the Build America bonds back in 08 and 09. So again, it's, a, it's capital formation, it's employment, there's a lot of great things, but I don't know that the industry broadly has done as good a job listening to people like Richard and telling that story of the value that's created. In terms of income inequality, it's been around for a long time. As you mentioned earlier, we do business in uh, over 80 different countries. If we think there's income inequality here, take a look at some of the other places in which we do business. The real point I would make to you is we need to make sure that we've got products and services and solutions that appeal to all individuals. Our newest product that is an asset allocation product, less than 100 basis points, goes down to savers of less or at $1,000 or more. Wow. Not 10,000, not 100,000, not a half a million, not a million, $1,000 or more, and that product's designed to be cost efficient for even that investor. And we want to welcome them to, our, to being a customer of ours. To me, it's important to define what trust means. And trust is four parts, ability, dependability, integrity, and purpose. And you can have quite different scores in those four criteria. I think most people buy off on ability of financial services. Dependability, depends, <laughs> uh, that's good English. Um, <laughs> and, you know, purpose, not so clear. Mm. And integrity, uh, too many scandals. Mm. Too many times that um, it's unclear, what were you doing? What were you thinking? Um, you have to actually be quite um, clear about how you're doing what you're doing. It's not just that you're doing it. 
People want to see the supply chain. They want to be sure how you're pricing products, and they want to be sure that um, you report out on it and that you're accountable. Well, and there's also accessibility, right, which is kind of what Dan was speaking to. When you talk about that gap in the more informed versus the less informed in trust and financial services, also because they don't necessarily have access to financial services. I mean, I don't know how many products there are out there like that $1,000 savings product. I think probably there are quite a few people who feel like they don't have the money to put in the market or put in any kind of, of savings vehicle, right? I, well said. And when I think about what we do, there's only three things we do. We help people save enough, we help people have enough, and we have, help people protect what they have in the way of assets and their, and their loved ones. Those are the only three things we do, and we do that around the globe. I think the best thing that came out of technology, and fintech specifically, is that you can now be so much more relevant, so much more accessible through technology solutions. Most of us are very comfortable using a mobile device and accessing products and services online. I don't think as a society we're putting as much time and energy into understanding what these products and services can do. Part of that responsibility comes on us to tell a better story, but at the same time, if, if everyone in this room spent half as much time planning for their financial future as they did for their next holiday trip away, we would be, as a society, very, very well off. But I also think, Joey, that the necessity of financial services firms helping conquer the fears of society. What are those fears? Mm -hmm. The first is automation. The second is downward economic mobility. And Four out of five who we survey all over the world actually believe that in 10 years they'll be worse off economically. By two to one, people are afraid of the pace of change because they thought they're going to lose their jobs to machines. So, you know, financial services is going to go through a wave of automation. 25% of jobs are going to be eliminated, give or take, because you can do back office a different way. Right. Well, so what's the retraining? What's the commitment to the community? How are we going to help get community colleges and others staffed up to deal with this mass of people, many of whom are sort of my age, um, are going to be, bye-bye, um, automated away. And it's white collar and blue collar. Don't kid yourselves. This is not simply truck drivers. This is happening in retail stores, it and it's also happening in back offices all over the country. So how do you reach those people? I mean, not, and not just those people, but also when you talk about accessibility, it's not just socioeconomic, um, it's also gender-based, it's also uh, people of color who don't necessarily have as much access. How do you address those issues? Yeah, I don't think we have the luxury any longer of saying if you go to a trade school or if you go to a four-year college or two-year college, your education's done. Get what you need and it's over with. It reminds me a little bit of uh, where technology was 30 and 40 years ago. If you learned Pascal or Fortran, uh, you, had it, you had it made for the next 10 or 15 years. And today, the way language works in computer science and programming, that language is changing three every four years. I think every job in this room, everything that we're doing is going to require reskilling every three to four to five years. So work with local universities, work with the colleges, work with the junior colleges to have re-education and helping people upgrade their skills in order to do the kinds of jobs that Richard was just talking about. They're becoming more sophisticated. One of the most powerful jobs, I think, in the future is leveraging the technology to better service the customer. We're a long way from ever being without call centers, but using the technology that helps enable that operator to, or that employee to work with the customers will be very critical. Also, I think 30% of the jobs in the U.S. now are gig economy jobs. 
There's no social safety net for that. That's a tremendous opportunity for principal and others. Dan, do you see your biggest competition as, a, as fintechs, for example, and, and lower cost services? Well, I, I really don't. I think everyone's a competitor, right? I mean, in this day and age, uh, there's no shortage of capital. But you do need to have critical mass, something Richard talked about earlier, trust. We've been doing this for 140 years. We'll be doing it 140 years from now. And just, you know, just to, to sort of lay the stage around longevity, 120 years ago, the life expectancy was 47 years. Today's life expectancy is 78 years. You just think about adding another 30 years, 50% of the children that are born today, 50% in developed countries will make it to age 100. So you're no longer trying to solve for the average retirement, by the way, in the last 30 years went from 63 years to 63 in nine months. While longevity improved significantly, about 10 years over that period of time. So now you have to solve for not solving for having enough in the way of assets and financial support to last for 20 or 25 years. We're talking about a 40-year period of time. Well, what's so fascinating to me, we were having a conversation about this ahead of time, is that the younger generations actually get that. They do. Which is a very surprising thing. So when you're talking about Gen Z or millennials, you've done some research on how much they're saving versus how much their parents saved. Yeah, the future's in a better place than the, uh, than the, the baby boomers, the parents, effectively, uh, because they are less confident about Social Security being there as that safety net, as Richard was just mentioning. They see it more in their control. The gig economy means their products and services need to change because it won't all be through employer-based savings models, but there's ways that we can deal with that. But if you just looked at the average savings rate of millennials, X, Ys, and Zs, we'll just put them in that category. Zs, of course, are the newest. Their average deferral in 401k savings program has increased by 25% since the crisis. Think about that. So I guess what that means is even if their trust in financial services is not particularly high, they're holding their nose and putting the money there regardless. I think that's I mean, that's what that would imply. Yes, but... Also, um, we've just done a little more research the last two weeks about uh, millennials' interest in uh, blockchain and crypto, and it's substantially higher, um, almost intuitively, than, you know, again, my cohort. And, and it should be. I mean, millennials will lead the um, transformation if companies like Principal, which they will, get aggressive about explaining the necessity and the opportunity. And so it sounds like there is potentially a market opportunity here. I guess the question is, are people in the industry fully taking advantage of it? Well, I think they are. There's three groups that I think we all worry about. One is the small to medium-sized employer who may not have a plan or those that work for the gig in a gig economy. They're going from 1099 job to 1099 job. That's one. The second group are those people, uh, people of color, Uh, and women in particular, who may not have as much access to information that they ideally would like to have access to. And it's our job to make sure that we recognize every single person out there and how we can be helpful in meeting them where they're at, not where we're at, meet them where they're at. And the last is around longevity. Uh, If you've got good genes and your parents are living you know, into their 85s, 90, 95, there's a really good chance that you're gonna need to do the same thing. And, you know, that means saving anywhere from 15, 16% of your income over the course of a 40-year working career. And that's if you start right out of school, kind of 23, 24, 25. I think it's really important that 
companies realize they're also going to have to tell their own stories. The number of reporters has con been constricted. The uh, means by which you communicate is now separated into two parts, the right wing and the left wing. <laughs> and people only read that which they agree with. So increasingly, I think every company is going to have to become its own media company. On top of what Yahoo and others do to tell the story, um, education, particularly talking to your own employees, get them to feel as if they have enough information to spread information horizontally. It's a different way of going. Right. Julie, can I ask the crowd one question? Yes, please. And how then we'll have, have to leave it just after you do how that. How many have student loans in this room? Come on, student don't be loans? shy, people. We know right. you're out there. So one of the most, most recent features we've added to our workplace savings programs is to have a feature that works with employers on helping people pay back their student loans. Yep. Because it can't be either or. You're going to have to save for retirement at the same time of paying down those student loans. Right. But if we can do that conveniently through the workplace, provide for payroll deduction, provide for financial education and guidance, that's just one additional thing that we can do for those people who may not feel that they're really in a position to save for retirement. Right, and that was going to be one of my questions about what kind of products and services different generations are asking for. So that's a good example to end on. Dan Houston, thank you so much. Richard Edelman, thank you as well. Thank you. Thank you for joining us at the Yahoo Finance All Market Summit. Thank you.